I think I've come around to the opinion that, the, you know, among the opposition's backers, by the time they got to the point where they no longer wanted the opposition to win outright, where they were looking for some sort of middle way, then they'd already lost. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. On this episode of TCF World, we invite Aaron Lund, Sam Heller, and Michael Wahid Hanna to talk about the next phase in Syria. Hi, I'm uh, Sam Heller, um, the angry-sounding one. <laughs> I'm Aaron Lund, and this is Michael Hanna. So, so to begin, every time I speak to you guys lately about Syria, we end up, I end up hearing like... Uh, uh, angry declamations about the mess uh, that the U.S. is getting into in the Southeast um, and, uh, and or uh, sort of hand-wringing about the confusion in the Northeast where you've got Turkey and the U.S. and the Syrian government and the Iranians involved. And we could start with either of those places, but I'm wondering, actually, are those two things the most important, uh, like, locus of what's happening in Syria right now, or is it what the regime is doing in uh, Damascus and Aleppo, where it has been busily reasserting itself since uh, reconquering Aleppo in December. What happens in regime territories is the most important thing. It's just that no one knows, because what what Assad manages to do with Aleppo, for example, after retaking the eastern part of the city, if he can stabilize that and get things going and get people to return. Well, so what's happened there? Because you you wrote a bunch of things, Aaron, uh, right after December, and this, this seemed to be like a critical question. Can can the regime actually reimpose the state in, in Aleppo after several years of it being, uh, and, of it being broken and away? And my guess is that it is that it can, because Aleppo is, is a city, and they've already controlled most of the city. And, and there are just these eastern neighborhoods that they sort of, they're, they're bombed out, and people have fled, and so on. But they can, I mean, that you can, you can roll out services and, and governance from the western half of the city into the eastern half, and that will take some time, and it will be messy, and so on, but... So did did we? Do that. It will be more difficult with the with the, the wider territory, I think. Did we exaggerate the importance of rebel-held Aleppo while it existed? Was that a uh, the idea that there was ha- half of Aleppo, or at some points more, that was in in rebel hands? Was that actually a sort of a misread, or maybe even a willful misread of how how much the rebels had managed to take? Yeah, I mean, yeah, territorially they held not half, but. I think some somewhere in that vicinity, but but in terms of population, I think they held held maybe a tenth of the population toward the end. Well, I mean, I, I would say I would say two things. The move into Aleppo was a huge signifier for what the intentions of the rebels were, yes. right? Taking a major city, and I think that obviously changed the dynamics of the war at an earlier stage. And even at that stage, I think lots of people thought this might be a mistake. This was overreach and might lead to a kind of escalation of violence that I think ended up being true. And then the second part of that is whether it was exaggerated or not in terms of how the international community and even the rebels themselves understood their position in the war, losing Aleppo was a huge psychological blow and a really important symbolic victory for the regime. And since that time... um, the dynamics of the war have continued along that trajectory. So, you know, point of fact, uh, is it tactically significant? Um, maybe, but in terms of symbolic value, I think it's it's been, um, it is that important. And the way that we understand the war has changed dramatically since. I, I agree with that. I'm not saying it wasn't important, but I'm saying I think after 2000, from 2016, basically, when the Russians had gone into the war and, and Aleppo was... Uh, 
partly surrounded already that spring, I think it was pretty clear that, I mean, there was no way the Rebels could win that anymore. Okay. And from that I mean, point on, sort of. But I mean, yeah, I think that, yeah, I, I would agree that the, whatever at that point the kind of tactical significance of Aleppo's eastern neighborhoods was, then the, the political and symbolic blow of losing it has been something close to a death blow for the viability of the uh, of the opposition to the Assad regime. What about the obverse, though? Has has the regime's success at taking the city back over, and crucially, if this is true, governing a Sunni population? Because this is one of the one of the implications of critics of the regime is that they can't they depopulate Sunni areas, but they can't actually take. Sunni areas that, that at some point rose up in rebellion and keep the people in them while regaining control over them. And Aleppo seems to suggest, I mean, I, I don't know, this is my impression, that in fact, they can do it. Uh, ha, is that what they have done? Again, I think it's a difference because Aleppo is part of a city, it's part of a system. The, the test, I think, will come when, when or if the regime moves deep into the Aleppo countryside, I think. And they, there was just an announcement from the from the prime minister of Syria who said that they're now they've taken a decision to sort of roll back state structures into the southern eastern parts of the Aleppo province where where the Islamic State had been, and we'll see how that works. And probably we'll, we won't know until much later. But but I think that's where the real test comes. I would be looking less at kind of a, a, a part flattened, uh, largely depopulated half of this major urban center. And then I feel like the test is in some of these rural areas, whether it's in the Damascus countryside or in Idlib or the Aleppo countryside, and then whether these these areas can ever properly be subdued or if they're going to remain essentially permanently restive uh, and basically no-go areas for uh, no-go areas for loyalists or or incompletely. Uh, you know, integrated uh, in institutional and economic terms uh, into the, you know, larger Syrian state and society. Uh, I think that remains still an open question. I'm conflicted, and I think for may- maybe some of the same reasons that, that you are, in that there's there's too much we don't know about not just internal Syrian government decision-making, but really just realities in places like Aleppo, even in places like Latakia uh, that have been in, in, in government hands the whole time, we just don't know how many people live there, uh, what level of water and electricity are actually making it into the, into the cities, uh, how many IDPs there really are. The government either doesn't provide data or provides sometimes data we know isn't true. Uh, and therefore, we're, 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 I think we're, we're at a loss. But I mean, the working, my working hypothesis three years ago was that the was that the government um, couldn't sustain uh, the basic web of control over the population it governed, uh, both in terms of services and in terms of security, and even negative security. I, I, I uh, on my last reporting trip to to Syria, had the impression that even the the sort of apparatus of surveillance and the the different Muhabarat uh, divisions that were in charge of policing dissent were just over over uh, overstretched and understaffed and weren't, weren't capable capacity wise of doing their job. Uh, today, I'm not so sure of that. Today, today it seems that the, the state has made a comeback, and I'm really curious whether whether that process happens as quickly as it's reverse. And, uh, and a, an analytical assumption that I'm now questioning is that it takes much longer to reestablish state control or oppressive state control 
uh, uh, as it does to to break it apart. And now I'm, I'm no longer so so confident in my in my analytical assumptions there. And and I think if we can ever really get access to government side theory again, we would we would be able to maybe answer that question. Well, and if we were thinking a few years ago, what dominated a lot of our discussions was manpower and manpower shortages, and the fact that the regime was unable to fight on multiple fronts. And when one front was committed to, uh, other fronts in the rear always opened up. Uh, you saw this in, in Hama and uh, Aleppo and elsewhere. And uh, this, the ability to sustain a military campaign without losing uh, momentum and territory in other places, that seems to have changed um, in, term, in the regime's favor. Uh, and so um, I think it has made a difference in terms of the landscape of the war, the dynamics of fighting um, has shifted. Uh, and the regime is now able, it still suffers from manpower shortages, clearly, outside assistance uh, remains, um, but they're able to focus resources in a way that perhaps didn't exist um, uh, previously. We don't talk about manpower in the same way that we did several years ago. So this raises two questions that I want to throw out at you guys. One, was it the committed, decisive foreign interventions of Iran and Russia that, that changed that, that resolved the manpower shortage. And if, if winning is all that matters for legitimacy, and it doesn't matter if the victory comes because some outside power gave you the people power or the resources to, to actually win it on the battlefield. I mean, I think the first question I think is easy to answer. The, the Russian and Iranian support for the regime was, was decisive, I think, in turning the war. I'm not saying Assad would have lost were fallen or anything like that, he might have lost more territory, but 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 to get where he is now and, and to have this momentum that he has now, I think that was that was necessary. Um, without forgetting, of course, that developments of the opposition side have mattered as well, Turkey's shift and, and, and other things. Although, I mean, you know, I don't think that those can necessarily be disaggregated. Uh, yeah, no. Just because, you know, it seems like the Russian intervention in particular did a lot to, to kind of scare out uh, some of the opposition backers who might otherwise have, have provided more robust support or you know, even if they already had some second thoughts about elements within the opposition, that they were still committed to them. You know, but I mean, after, after Russia came in, I think that there was a sense that took hold uh, that you know, this was essentially Russia's, Russia's court now. Right. Uh, that this was their dominion, uh, and then that has been the the effective assumptions that have people have proceeded on ever since. Right, and I mean the Turkish shift, for example, which yeah. I think was hugely important and, and under under appreciated actually. Yeah. American pseudo. Well, well realistically, I mean this is this is what it is. I mean once that you know once that Russia steps in and you have this kind of great power, full on commitment on behalf of the regime, then confronting them on behalf of a you know a political project that you no longer really believe in is no longer viable. Mm. Uh, I mean, you can't, like, you can't do it, you can't justify that risk, or you can't kind of prioritize this front among, you know, your other various kind of equities that you have with Russia worldwide. And so what you have is that people acquiesce, you know, in one form or another, or to different degrees, to, uh, you know, to Russia's strategic dominance. Uh, and then they pursue some sort of accommodation with Russia. Uh, and then they, you know, what certainly that was the, the premise of diplomacy through 2016. Uh, it's what Turkey did with Euphrates Shield and is now, you know, apparently trying to duplicate with Astana. Um, yeah, so now the, the, way, the way forward runs through Russia. 
I think it's something that people figured out relatively quickly. I think some of the discourse, some of the, the, the policy debate around this took a little longer to catch up, though. Well, I think it also exposed flaws in the underlying assumptions of those supporting rebel groups, which was a policy of incremental escalation through proxies uh, that sought to uh, force a political shift on the part of the regime. Uh, and I think that you know, over time it became clear that that was likely untenable. Uh, with Russia's entrance into the war, it became clear that just maintaining that logic, even if it was flawed, became really impossible. Uh, and uh, and the assumptions of really very serious risks for, you know, indeterminate gains. So the idea was there was a sweet spot of violence in which the regime would feel sufficiently threatened to come to a political settlement, uh, but not so much that you might actually threaten the viability of the regime, because by at, later in this war, nobody in the West really wanted to see regime change. Right. And, I mean, I think that actually, I mean, I think that that, that assumption, the idea that this could somehow, that, that violence could be calibrated in order to produce this kind of compromise political solution, I think it actually infuriates me. Uh, <laughs> like, it makes me so mad. And, and, and yet I believe that. <laughs> but well, go on. I would say I did believe it. I don't believe it anymore. I think it's, uh, I think it's crazy. And I'm... <laughs> <laughs> I'm so I I may write another angry thing to this effect, but you know basically I'm I'm I think I've come around to the opinion that you know among the opposition's backers by the time they got to the point where they no longer wanted the opposition to win outright, where they were looking for some sort of middle way, then they'd already lost. Yeah, this was no longer a winning. This yeah. was no longer a winning proposition, the and then nothing made sense yeah. anymore. When there was no alternative, then you then you're stuck. Well, but I mean, I, I think this idea has is, it's gone through several phases. First, you had the idea that you could put pressure on the regime, and then it would somehow give up Assad. Then you had the idea that you could put pressure on Assad, and then sort of he would negotiate himself out of power smoothly somehow. And then you had the idea that when Russia came in. That became impossible. But then the idea mutated and became that if you put enough pressure on Assad, then Russia will push him out of power. So looking at what's happened since uh, Trump's taken power, some events have tested some of these hypotheses. So continue talking, but but bring up the shooting down of, of, the, of the Syrian government plane. Uh, bring up the, uh, the clashes and near clashes between... U.S. and partner groups against uh, Iranian and Syrian regime partner groups in the East, because these were these were the things that were supposedly going to either cause World War III in the catastrophist view, uh, or that were going to supposedly force the regime to completely change its approach in the utopian mm -hmm. optimist view, which neither neither of those outcomes happened. So, what did what did those things uh, achieve, um, and and what do we learn from them about this? these hypotheses you have that, that so that, but first off i would say the catastrophist view of this is a straw man and it's something that has been used by pro-intervention voices to suggest that because it didn't happen in this case this argument that has been made over and over again is uh, invalid and I, it's just logically flawed um it's different also a regime uh, fighter as opposed to a russian fighter jet um, to conflate all that based on one incident, I think, is slightly silly. Um, but that's my pet peeve on, on that point. Um, the other big issue, and it's one that we don't really know, is what is the intent behind all of this? And part of this is the 
really unprecedented devolution of authorities to military commanders on the ground. So uh, were these tactical decisions based on tactical considerations? You mean by the by the West or by the by the West? Okay. By the West. I mean, was this in fact simply force protection? Uh, yeah, I mean that seems to have been my understanding. Of, uh, and and that's a very different thing than taking a kind of concerted. Uh, strategic shift that says the United States is now going to fight the regime and its backers over this territory, and we are in the process of beginning rollback. I mean, well, f- f- fundamentally, I think it's different things because pushing Assad out of power means ending the regime as it is the regime now. Keeping it out of a certain territory or punishing use of chemical weapons, those are also things that the regime will be upset by. But I mean that it's not an existential issue. That can be sort of they can they can respond to that in various ways. But it's not the same thing. I mean, there's I there's huge differences in terms of, of of scale and intent, and then how these you know how these the the latest skirmishes I think or kind of clashes whatever have been communicated uh, to the other side. I mean, I, I view the the static that's happened around Tanif, the downing of the Syrian jet around Tabqa. I mean, all these things are, are, are risky and potentially problematic, but I, you know, I view them as of a piece with the Shahirat uh, missile strikes in that, I mean, these were, you know, they were, they were limited, specific things. Uh, they were communicated relatively <laughs> clearly <laughs> to the other side in ways that were, you know, that were designed to, uh, to, you know, to demonstrate that this was not a menace to, or a deliberate menace to Russia in particular, uh, and were not aimed at, uh, were not aimed at regime change. They did not threaten regime survival. Uh, I think that if, you know, if you were to somehow try to, you know, impose a, a no-fly zone over the entirety of the country or to uh, some of the, the, the more wild stuff that was in circulation in late 2016... Uh, I think that that would have you know engendered a, a radically different response. It's a super different thing. Well, so the so the Iranian and regime narrative of the last few months was that the United States and its allies were desperately hanging on to this last redoubt in the eastern desert as a way of keeping some kind of physical block between Iraq and Syria, and that uh, that this was the last-ditch effort for relevance by the West and that it was foiled by the willingness of Iran and the Syrian government and their Iraqi uh, militia supporters to march forward and and do battle around uh, Tanf and and prove that they were more committed to this than than the U.S. Now, it's clear and observably true that they're much more committed to this than the West and its allies. I think that is not in dispute. The question is, uh, uh, was that sort of an accident that that then played into an, a, a, a good Iranian narrative, or was that actually was there actually a desire by the Trump administration and some of its allies to minimize the, the sort of la- final stage advance of the regime, uh, and they bungled it tactically? Like, were they there trying to, uh, with the assumption that by having American uh, special forces uh, and proxies in the in the eastern desert that the Iranians and the, and the Syrian government would stay away uh, and they could slow the slow down a regime victory and look relevant and then they just completely miscalculated or was that not their intention at all and they got played in in a in a propaganda way? Well, so I think there's an, several important points here. I think the first thing I would point to is the question of perception um, and how 
difficult it is to manage the other side's perceptions of your actions when you are using coercive violence. Uh, and so you know, part of the risk of es escalation is not necessarily the issue of um, you know, clear and coherent messaging on the part of the West. It's how those things are internalized by the other side. Um, and so escalation risks, uh, uh, for me, have, have oftentimes been about mistakes and mistaken perceptions. And that's something that I think we overestimate the ability to control. Uh, and uh, mistakes on the front lines in response to U.S. actions uh, can lead to inadvertent escalation. You know, anytime you have kinetic contact between the United States and Iranian-backed forces or regime-backed forces, um, that can be dangerous. Uh, we can't always control that kind of escalation cleanly uh, and be sure that it won't become something more just because that's the way it happened then. Uh, and you know, at the level of propaganda, uh, of course, this really looks excellent for, in terms of uh, the Iranian uh, regime narrative about what has happened there. It seems unlikely um, that that narrative is, is um, hues close to the truth, um, but it, it fits their narrative very cleanly. The, so, I mean, my understanding of what happened there, you know, around kind of, so you had two Western projects that were distinct, uh, but that converged in a way that was kind of menacing to the regime and its allies. So what you had was a tenth itself in which, uh, which, as far as I know, was premised on the idea that it would not come into contact with the regime. The regime had no serious intent of pushing further east. Uh, and that so, you know, some of the, uh, the, the Western countries, for example, that were participating in tenth that had special forces there that were training this, uh, this counter ISIL force, uh, they were doing so on the assumption that they would not come up against the regime, which they did not want to fight. Uh, and so this was a shared mistaken understanding. And then adjacent to that, you had uh, uh, you had FSA that were linked to a covert program down uh, run out of Jordan that were, uh, you know, taking an increasing, uh, increasingly large section of territory north of Tenth and, you know, threatening to, to link back up into the eastern Kalamun uh, in a way that would have posed a, a serious threat and a problem to the regime. Uh, and so these two things together, uh, it seems like it provoked the regime and then its uh, its Iranian ally and their various kind of proxy appendages to uh, to take action and to frustrate this in a way that I don't think anyone understood was uh, I don't think anyone understood was coming or was possible uh, and then they did that in relatively short order I, mean, I don't know if it's you know if it's tactical or strategic brilliance but it looks smart and then it's smart in that it, it was it was paired with it was part of what they did in Astana. So it was the Astana and the way that they froze all these Western fronts that freed up the forces that allowed them to do this. Uh, and then it was because of, you know, seemingly because of what was happening in Kalamun and Tenth, that they had the urgency to, to motivate them to do that and then to finally enter this space and then ruin what could have been, you know, a, I mean, a, a, there's, a Western there's project. Still, you, I mean, the, 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 of course the U.S. and others could, could sort of push around that if they really wanted to, but I think the... the the, again, the thing here is the U.S. does not want this as much as the regime does, and 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 they tested that and they've come to that conclusion. And maybe the, I don't know how the you, you you know more about how what what is being said in Washington about this, but I think the regime tested this, and they also, I mean, they would ideally have wanted the Tanif back. They 
pushed and the US sort of stood up for, for the zone they'd created there and, and they didn't get it and they still hope to get it because they need that road to Baghdad. It's an incredible victory. <laughs> no, but I mean, uh, that's not what I'm saying. I mean, I mean I'm, I'm, it's, it's, they're trying different things. Some of them work, some of them don't. Most of this work, but not all of it. Well, I mean, and one thing I think that has happened is that it has clarified US intent. Uh, yeah, the signals exactly. coming out from particularly DOD after this suggested a very focused fight, an ISIS uh, focus, uh, and um, some of these more these uh, more extraneous commitments seem to have fallen away. Whether that was the original intent, whether that is in response to countermeasures by uh, the regime and its backers, is somewhat immaterial. But it does seem to have clarified what the U.S. is doing there now. Uh, and in the near-term future. Yeah, I mean, the, the possibility that 10th could have been used as a launching pad to, to block this land bridge, to somehow occupy, uh, you know, Deir Azor in a way that would frustrate Iranian access from Iraq. You know, I think it seems like the Iranians and the regime took it seriously enough to deliberately frustrate it. But, you know, because of when they, certainly, you know, when they when they launched this blocking maneuver, the discussion that had been kind of circulating about this in kind of the American commentariat and press, it was unreal because this force didn't, the, the force didn't exist, certainly not on the kind of scale that really could have, that could have run this race, that could have mounted a challenge here. Uh, and then, so this was entirely, I mean, it was, it was imaginary. Um, but then like, yeah, you know, after they did this, then it, it, it kind of it put the nail in that, like it was done. So in, in some sense, this may, I mean, the regime may have acted in some part, at least provoked by the debate that was coming out of Washington at that point, where yeah. people were sort of suggesting this idea, even though it wasn't. Well, people were projecting something that was very ambitious and had, yeah. you know, fit into a larger kind of regional strategic context. And then at least as far as I know, we had no, it was not doable. You know, you did not have that force. There was no, there was no indication that it could have been expanded or built up into something of that kind of scale and capability. But it gets back to this point, and I think it's very important: the very the difficulty in managing perceptions. So, if in fact DoD had one set of intentions, and these different voices coming out of the commentariat in Washington blurred that picture, it's important. It tells us how how things that we think maybe are clear and should be clear. Uh, are not always going to be clear in, in terms of the, the how the other side sees it. Uh, well, thanks uh, for listening to this edition of the Century Foundation's uh, Foreign Policy Podcast. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. Hi, Sam Heller. Marilyn. And Michael Hanna. TCF World has been brought to you by the Century Foundation a progressive public policy think tank that seeks to foster opportunity, reduce inequality, and promote security at home and abroad. For more information about Century's work, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook.